the podcast's guide to the conspiracy, featuring Josh Edison and M. Dentis. My guest this week is Matt Shields, an assistant professor at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Matt is the author of, amongst other things, Rethinking Conspiracy Theories, which appeared in Synthase earlier this year, and Conceptual Engineering, Conceptual Domination, and The Case of Conspiracy Theories, which will appear in a special issue of Social Epistemology that I'm editing. Matt was also a panelist at the first international conference on the philosophy of conspiracy theory, where I was showcasing new work by new philosophers. So it's great to welcome Matt to the show. Hello, how are things in North Carolina on this historic day in the Republic of America? Um, well, first off, thank you so much for for having me. Um, yeah, waiting a bit with bated breath here about the outcome of uh, the election today, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, I can't say I'm I'm holding out much hope for a uh, for a good outcome. I suspect there's been probably a pre preponderance of conspiracy theories around this particular election. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. A great deal of them. It does seem that the stolen election conspiracy theories are already being espoused by people who look like they're going to win, but are using it as an excuse for saying, well, if I don't win, it definitely isn't because people didn't vote for me. It's because Joe Biden went around and personally put extra ballots in the boxes. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. That's a that's a very interesting kind of evolution of the stolen election conspiracy theories, that additional element where even though they're favored to win, they're still deploying that that type of view. Yeah. Yeah, with Joe Biden as a kind of electoral Santa Claus, but only rewarding the bad kids and not <laughs> Now, that's a good way to actually get into the trivial question. I like to ask all the academics who work on conspiracy theory, what actually got you into conspiracy theories in the first place? Yeah, um, we had a chance to to talk about this a little bit at the the Pitzer conference that that you mentioned, um, which was kind of helpful for thinking about about this this question for me. How did I get into the conspiracy theory theory literature? Um, for me, it was looking at a lot of both certain popular treatments, but also academic research around the 2016 period, where there seemed to be emerging. Um, this increasingly influential um, and almost consensus type position that what we were seeing was this explosion of irrationality in the way in which ordinary citizens seem to evince a kind of deep distrust of mainstream political, economic, media, and so on institutions, and that this represented kind of a very serious crisis. And so, for example, you would find kind of very familiar claims about the great threat of populism, um, you know, from the right in the form, so here in the US, in the form of Donald Trump, to the left in the form of Bernie Sanders or going to the UK and the campaigns of Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. Um, and I um, was really not a, a fan of this kind of entire way of looking at our political lives and was very concerned about it, in particular, again, kind of the way it was becoming a sort of consensus position, because I think that in general, people have excellent reason to kind of be distrustful of a society's institutions when they've, you know, brought about massive economic inequality, haven't done anything about 
the existential threats of of things like climate change, um, when they you know commit atrocities, uh, endless atrocities abroad, um, and when the very figures uh, who are sort of promoting this this kind of narrative about the you know unwashed masses and their uh, unwarranted distrust and and expertise in mainstream institutions, when those very institutions themselves are responsible for a great deal of so-called kind of misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda. So just to give kind of one example that I feel like really kind of stuck in my craw um, was I noticed that the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, was um, you know writing pieces about the perils of conspiracy theories when he himself had written this kind of infamous, in my view, piece. Um, in uh, It was in March 2002 in the lead up to the Iraq war in The New Yorker that was absolutely crucial for pushing the view. And some might say, and maybe we'll even talk about this, the conspiracy theory of a link between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. Um, and uh, I talk about this, I use this as a resource in one of my papers, but Robert Draper's book, How to Start a War, it's a pretty good overview for those who aren't familiar with that, uh, the lead up to the Iraq war. But that piece became sort of received wisdom on the beltway and became crucial, something the Bush administration could point to, to say, look, it's not just sort of neocons in the right wing um, who are who are pushing this view. We've got this left of center publication that's taking that view. Um, and yet at the same time, it was a figure like Goldberg who was talking about this great threat post-2016 of, of sort of distrust in the rise of conspiracy theories. And um, so uh, I was very concerned about, uh, about sort of this emerging um, ideology. And that was it was in that context that I came across Kasim Kassam's 2019 book, Conspiracy Theories. And I felt in some ways that it was kind of a microcosm of this tendency. And I thought, um, this would be a way to engage with this this type of worldview and to uh, critique it, and then that became sort of my introduction to the world of conspiracy theory theory. And I realized Kassam wasn't alone, but I was also very pleased to see that you know that wasn't the only uh, position that was on offer. Yes, actually, that brings us quite nicely to the second obvious question. So Kassam's 2019 book, Conspiracy Theories, is rather light on talking about other philosophers engaging in conspiracy mm -hmm. theory. There are two rather derogatory references to David Cody and Charles Pigdom. There's one superlative reference to Brian L. Keeley, but you would get from the impression of Kassam's book, there's virtually no literature on conspiracy theory, theory in philosophy, other than the work he's done. He even goes to a certain extent to not mention his first piece in Aeon, talking about kind of the idea that conspiracy theorists are gullible. So when you started looking at the literature, were you surprised by the existing literature in philosophy? Were you pleased by its existence? Were, were you horrified by the work that, that your peers had already done? Um, no, it was it it was a pleasant surprise. And as as you mentioned, you wouldn't necessarily leave Kassam's book with the, you know, with the impression that there was already substantial literature that was out there. And uh so so that was great to um to come across and find, I think, some some kindred spirits. And it was actually it was also sort of helpful for clarifying the slightly different approach that I wanted to take, especially in that initial rethinking conspiracy theories piece, I think it's um, it's a piece that's very much aligned with, in fact, in its original version was was maybe even more transparently aligned with 
the kind of literature that's out there, so-called particularism, the idea that, and I know you've discussed this quite a bit on the on the podcast, and of course are yourself, you know, one of the foremost uh, kind of representatives and defenders of the view, um, but that we should evaluate the epistemic merits or lack thereof of conspiracy theories on a case-by-case basis. Um, so it was helpful to encounter and interact with that literature to sharpen up kind of how I wanted to approach things from, again, I think a, a kindred perspective, but also a, a slightly different one. And that brings us quite nicely to rethinking conspiracy theories in which you critique generalism in a rather novel way. So you focus on the kind of exemplar conspiracy theories that you claim generalists uncritically center in their analyses. So let's talk a little bit about domination and dominant versus non-dominant institutional conspiracy theories. So what is a dominant institutional conspiracy theory and what is a non-dominant institutional conspiracy theory? Yeah, I think, so um, again, this kind of traces back to the paper doesn't end up just looking at Kassam, although he's one of the main figures that I'm critiquing, but um, maybe it would be helpful to say a little bit about how how the idea got off the ground, and then that'll that'll sort of bring us to the to the distinction. Um, so in Kassam's book, you know, uh, when you when you crack it open and get to that that first chapter, the very first example that he gives um, is what he dubs himself this outrageous conspiracy theory of the Bush administration linking um, Al Qaeda and Iraq. An example he never goes back to later on in the book. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, when I'm when I'm reading it for the first time, I'm like, oh, I'm very pleasantly surprised. Maybe this is actually going to be a descent from that, you know, dominant narrative that I was discussing before, um, where the idea is that there we need this sort of unique epistemic vocabulary to censure and stigmatize individuals who are not part of uh, mainstream and powerful. Um, say a political institution. So I thought, oh, maybe it's it's going to be an exception. But exactly as you point out, he never returns to it. And in fact, um, what's what's for me what's kind of particularly odd is that many of the conclusions and generalizations he goes on to make about conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists are directly at odds with that kind of example. And I noticed that. So as I started to dig into the literature further, another paper I know you're, of course, very familiar with, um, Sunstein and Vermeule's 2009 paper, um, makes a very uh, a very kind of similar move. In fact, they do it even more explicitly. So in the middle of the paper, for, uh, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's, it's worth checking out. And they, they sort of say very casually throughout, we assume a well-motivated government. Um, and then they also say, despite the fact that, of course, it's the case that governments themselves can be purveyors of conspiracy theories in the pejorative sense, um, and give the example of uh, the Bush administration's linking of al-Qaeda and Iraq. Um, and as with Qassam, that goes on to play no subsequent role in their in their analysis, in part because they're saying, right, we're marginalizing examples of that kind. And so what... What I what I argue in my paper, rethinking conspiracy theories, is that, in fact, what we what we have going on in these cases is that so-called or what I call in the paper dominant institutional conspiracy theories are ones that are clearly being sometimes explicitly so marginalized in the literature, and it's being done almost entirely without without argument. So what do I what do I mean by this this, this distinction between dominant and non-dominant theorists and theories? Well. 
I should also say that in part, you know, I'm very skeptical of uh, the any kind of pejorative concept of conspiracy theory. So I'm very sympathetic to the particularist perspective. But part of what I'm doing in the paper is I'm saying, all right, generalists, let's let's take this concept seriously. How does it follow then if we take the concept seriously that we ought to analyze it by your own lights, given the ways you tell us that the pejorative concept of conspiracy theories ought to be analyzed? Um, and what I argue is that we should be centering or treating as, as paradigmatic um, these dominant institutional conspiracy theories. Okay, so finally, to, to kind of define what I have in mind there, I don't mean anything particularly controversial. I just mean um, cases of conspiracy theories and theorists, again, in the generalist pejorative sense, um, that are fabricated, consumed, promoted by um, institutions that are broadly influential and powerful within the society in question. So, you know, to say if we were to take kind of a more sort of Western centric um, or, or say U.S. Con, uh, context, it would be sort of the U.S. government or corporations like Exxon and, and Amazon for media outlets. It would be, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, Fox News, CNN. And the non-dominant institutional conspiracy theories would be um, conspiracy theories and theorists, again, in the pejorative generalist sense, that aren't part of those institutions, um, either because they're really not part of institutions at all. It's very diffuse individuals, for example, who have very informal relationships to one another in online communities, or they are part of more sort of formal structures and organizations and institutions, but don't have anything like the power and influence of the kinds of examples I was just giving. And so, once you have that distinction in hand, what you realize is you go through this literature that says, you know, conspiracy theories are by their very nature epistemically problematic is that all of their examples, their paradigm cases are non-dominant institution theories and theorists. So, for example, um, the probably their go-to example is so-called 9-11 is inside job theories, um, but also JFK assassination conspiracy theories, Princess Diana, the moon landing was fake. Illuminati, um, Sandy Hook shooting conspiracy theories, um, and, and similar kinds of examples. Again, ones that are not fabricated and promoted by individuals within um, dominant political, economic, media, intelligence institutions uh, within the societies um, in, in question. And so what I what I end up arguing in the paper is that, in fact, the dominant institutional conspiracy theories by the generalists own lights, again, by the very way that they understand what conspiracy theories and theorists are, those should be our main examples. And what ends up happening is if you make that move, almost um, all of the generalists main claims about who conspiracy theorists are, why they believe what they believe and the harms that result from conspiracy theories on their view, all of those claims turn out to be either just just false or they need to be kind of radically uh, revised. Yeah, and what, what, I mean, I quite like this particular approach, which is kind of hoisting generalists by their own petard, going, look, if we play your game, what is the consequence of playing it this way? And you talk in the paper about, you know, Kassam and his talk about conspiracy theories being examples of right-wing propaganda, so his argument is, is, if you point out to a conspiracy theorist that their conspiracy theories are a form of right-wing propaganda, most sensible people go, oh, 
I'll have no truck with that. And they'll just leave, <laughs> leave it alone, which seems like one of those stunningly naive things that an, a former Oxbridge professor might believe, given the kind of, of commute he has when he's taking tea during mm. the, the day. Mm. You get M. Julia Napolitano and her claim that, well, look, conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists, they suffer from epistemic insulation. You know, they're, they're immune to evidence. They won't change their minds about things. And thus, when we recenter the kind of dominant institutional conspiracy theories, which seem to vacillate quite a lot in their storytelling, then we have a bit of a problem there. And then, of course, there's the actual societal harms. So it seems that Dominant institutional conspiracy theories really are very harmful. Weapons of mass destruction in mm. Iraq as mm. a theory did a massive amount of harm to the people of Iraq. And also, not just the people of Iraq, the soldiers sent by the UK and the US to Iraq were also victims and harmed by this particular conspiracy theory. So maybe we should we should go through Kassam, Napolitano, and the harms thing. Although first, it might be useful to get a few more examples of dominant institutional conspiracy theory. So weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the example which gets used by Kassam, gets used by Sunstein and Vermeule, that seems like a really obvious one. Do you have other examples in mind as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd be happy to talk about kind of kind of other ones, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk about uh, the other sort of main case study that I have in the in the paper of uh, dominant institutional conspiracy theory and theorists um, is cases of domestic and and particularly what I focus on are global McCarthyism. And that phrase global McCarthyism, there I'm indebted to the uh, the journalist uh, Vincent Bevins, whose recent book I, I highly recommend um, called the the Jakarta Method, um, where he discusses um, global McCarthyism as as kind of a concept. But the idea, whether it was on the domestic scene in the mid and earlier 20th century in the U.S., um, and then kind of throughout the um, latter half of the the 20th century um, uh, globally um, for the for the U.S., um, the the idea was that wherever one found growing uh, support for communism within a population, again, whether in the U.S. or abroad, that in fact these were people who were um, stooges of uh, Soviet power and influence that were in fact controlling what was what was going on. That it was kind of a, um, as I have kind of um, an excerpt there from this amazing speech that Kennedy is giving to the press corps after just shortly after the Bay of Pigs <laughs> invasion. So uh, you know somehow the the irony of making these kinds of proclamations about a Soviet conspiracy to um, overthrow. Uh, local governments and try and impose um, one's country's hegemony um, is is just completely lost. But anyway, Kennedy talks about this kind of ruthless monolithic Soviet conspiracy, and that of course was kind of the consensus view in Washington in approaching the Cold War across both parties. Um, and this was used as kind of the pretext for unbelievable atrocities that the uh, that the U.S. Um, perpetrated. So just to give, you know, kind of a few examples that I talk about in the paper, it was 
it was this narrative that was crucial in the overthrow um, of Mossadegh in Iran that led to the brutal dictatorship of the of the Shah, of the overthrow of Arbenz in, in Guatemala, of Sukarno in, in Indonesia. And so not only do you have the subverting and overthrowing of democratically elected leaders and governments, you have mass atrocities that are committed. It's estimated that in Indonesia, about a million people uh, were killed um, and that um, you know Washington helped directly help to facilitate that process, both in the overthrow and in the killing of um, you know, perceived dissidents and, and uh, communists. Um, so yeah, on the question of harms, um, to me, it both when we look at examples, but then once you just think about the category of what a dominant institutional conspiracy theory is, it isn't a coincidence, right, that they're more harmful. In a sense, of course, they're more harmful because these are the dominant institutions, ergo, they have more resources, power, influence in order to um, carry out these kinds of projects and harms. And to, to contrast it, right, with the example that seems to be the go-to these days for more generalist uh, style pictures, 9-11 is an inside job, right? So suppose you accept uh, the way that that sort of view is presented by generalists. So, so grant them everything that they say about it. What precisely are the harms supposed to be of engaging in this um, in this kind of you know totally epistemically egregiously flawed speculation? Right again, granting them that picture. Um, it's it's to me it's totally mysterious and it's never really discussed. And in fact, often what you find I think in the literature, both among generalists, sometimes you find this in the social science literature. I found too. Um, although you're you're sort of uh, more of an expert on it than than I am, but I feel like you often find this kind of two step that takes place, where to motivate the idea that we should care about conspiracy theories, the claim is, well, you know, they pose this very serious harm, and the reason they pose this harm, right? Often go to examples in that context to motivate the project are, um, you know, for example, references to the use of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories or about uh, views about other kinds of minority groups. And that's, yeah, again, used to, to motivate the idea that these are things we should be very worried about, these conspiracy theories. But of course, those are almost always dominant institutional conspiracy theories, right? Or at least they begin life there, that they are again, fabricated and promoted by individuals in within the relevant society who are targeting the minority group and dehumanizing them and uh, stigmatizing them through these kinds of conspiracy theories. Uh, those are part of the dominant political media economic matrix within that within that society. But then, the examples that are analyzed, right, whether it's in the social science literature, often, not, not always, but often, and then in the generalist philosophical literature, is the example like 9-11 is an inside job, or JFK assassination, or Princess Diana conspiracy theories. And to me, there are some cases like the Sandy Hook conspiracy theories where, you know, you can say there are direct harms to, to individuals, right, the, the relentless harassment of um, the families of Sandy Hook victims, which of course is terrible and one shouldn't trivialize those harms, but they simply don't compare. So that's the best case scenario. I don't even know what the harms are supposed to be in the, in the other cases other than very abstract harms uh, to, you know, our, our epistemic uh, structural life in terms of uh, you know distrust in experts and we can we can talk about that I don't think it's very compelling the arguments are very compelling there either but they're very speculative and very vague so I don't even know what the direct harms are but even 
taking the case like the Sandy Hook case, which would seem to be the best one for the type of harms of non-dominant institutional theories, they just pale in comparison to the entire overthrow of a political system, the mass slaughter of civilians, and all of the knock-on harms and effects, as you know, as as you were just talking about, um, of these kinds of dominant institutional conspiracy theories. So that would be one major reason to center those kinds of conspiracy theories in our analysis. Yeah, this reminds me of a conversation I was having with David Robertson recently, who's a religious studies scholar who looks at conspiracy theories and kind of the intersection between certain kinds of conspiracy belief and religious belief. And one of his perennial complaints about the work in the social sciences is that often the way that conspiracy theory is defined makes it sound pretty close to religious belief. But they never mm. criticize religious belief because that's a, a sensible thing that sensible people have in sensible societies. Well, conspiracy theories are bad. And there's this kind of weird knock-on effect of going, well, look, we're going to say this thing is bad and then backport our analysis to explain why it's bad rather than go, what are the actual de deleterious social consequences of beliefs and what are the products of those beliefs, which is why you end up having the situation where these kind of dominant institutional conspiracy theories are often not even called conspiracy theories. The thing which is so interesting about the weapons of mass destruction narrative is that many of the people in the social sciences don't consider it to be a conspiracy theory. They go, well, you know, it's be it's been admitted to. It's not it's it's part of the official theory now. Well, 9-11 conspiracy theories, all those, they're called conspiracy theories. And we know conspiracy theories are bad. We don't necessarily know why they're <laughs> bad, but we know they are bad. And now we've got to explain why they're bad. Absolutely. And and note the very idea of sort of baking into the definition. I mean, there's there's some complicated kind of literature back and back and forth about this, but just to kind of zoom out at the most general register, uh, the idea of baking into the definition of conspiracy theories that they would be at odds with official stories. I mean, that's kind of the very move that going back to what we were talking about at the beginning is is the kind of thing I'm very concerned about, which is developing or inheriting uncritically a unique epistemic vocabulary for critiquing people who are not part of the halls of power, right? So that these are flaws that the, um, you know, the bewildered herd has, um, but the people who are members of dominant institutions, well, by implication, right, are exempt from these kinds of flaws. Um, and it's it's that kind of way of thinking that I'm that I'm very concerned about, and that you know, in in large part, I'm, I'm trying to critique in the piece. So, what happens to generalism if we center non-dominant institutional conspiracy theories in the analysis? So we move the focus away from these non-dominant ones, and we go let's mm -hmm. let's put the focus on the dominant ones, which the ones that have actual harms, the ones which cause you know, are propagandistic, the ones which are weirdly formed in an epistemic way. Is generalism tenable once we refocus our attention on dominant institutional conspiracy theories? So I I sort of focus on these four claims that generalists have have made once they sort of they say, okay, we're we're you know, starting from the idea that conspiracy theories are necessarily bad, they're forms of political propaganda, they're hopelessly epistemically insulated in the sense of being insensitive to counter evidence. 
Um, and the the four claims that are often made are are one that conspiracy theories are the work of amateurs who are um, skeptical of the those who are considered to be experts within the relevant field. We get the idea that they are the province of fringe political extremists um, rather than you know sort of sensible centrist mainstream ideology. We get the idea that um, they're promoted by individuals who have sort of negative life circumstances. They're downwardly mobile socioeconomically. That is, they're they're poor, they're undereducated, um, and other claims that are made. And then the kind of social science or aspects of the social science are invoked there. And then finally, we get the idea that to combat conspiracy theories, what we need is, you know, for example, better intellectual and, and moral education. Um, and so what, what I argue is that you only get those conclusions when you treat non-dominant uh, conspiracy theories and, and theorists as as the exemplars, as the main cases, but as I'm arguing throughout, and as we've discussed, right, I don't think those are the best examples. I don't think they're the most obviously politically propagandistic, because often the political views and ideologies behind them are very messy, right, which accords with empirically what we know about ordinary citizens, right? People's beliefs are, political beliefs are all over the place. Whereas people within dominant institutions, there are all kinds of reasons, right, why they have a more unified and clear political ideology. Um, I also think that dominant institutional theories and theorists are more epistemically insulated. And the reason for that is there are major costs to dissenting from the conspiracy theory, right? If I'm not on board with domestic and global McCarthyism, I'm not getting a job at the at the CIA or at the State Department or whatever. And and similar with if I'm not on board with claims that are being made about um, Iraq under the under the Bush administration and indeed both uh, major American political parties. So what happens then is if I take cases like say global McCarthyism or Iraq. Uh, conspiracy theories, and I treat those as paradigmatic. Those four claims, I think, all turn out to be false or just need to be completely revised. So the first one, conspiracy theories are amateurish and not advocated or um, uh, fabricated by individuals who are deemed to be experts isn't the case, right? So obviously, and, and I go through this in kind of quite a bit of detail in the paper, but many of those who are considered experts in terms of especially the foreign policy class, both members of the administration, but academics, policymakers, members of intelligence services were the authors of these kinds of conspiracy theories and kind of consume them hook, line, and sinker. So certainly not amateurs in the sense and whatever whatever that might whatever definition one wants to one wants to work with there um it's also not the case that it's political extremists right these were consensus views global McCarthyism and many aspects of domestic McCarthyism um right you know obviously there's some there's some important historical nuance very broadly speaking these were consensus views among both mainstream American political parties same with the um with the Iraq war um and then these are among the most educated, best well-off socioeconomically, uh, best sort of most have the most kind of social prestige of anyone within their society in terms of the people who are the authors and consumers of dominant institutional conspiracy theories. And then it doesn't seem like improving education is the, is the best or even apt antidote um, for dealing with these the the harms that that result then from conspiracy theories so construed um because again these are individuals who have had sort of the best possible educations it seems like what's needed instead is a complete restructuring of our dominant institutions restructuring of our dominant political economic media and so on institutions so that they can't serve as 
uh, vehicles for um, uh, for these kinds of projects. Um, so basically the the whole analysis and the set of generalizations that you typically get from generalist positions and the popular counterparts, right? I think that tends to be often at least in sort of mainstream media outlets and and popular media outlets or many popular media outlets, the picture you get is often a kind of generalist picture of conspiracy theories. Almost all of those claims turn out, again, to be false or they need to be uh, uh, completely overhauled. So is there room for gen- generalism, do you think? Or do we need to just bite the bullet and be particulars when it comes to claims of conspiracy? Yeah, I think, um, and and I know you know this, M, but the, the original version of the paper was was in a way, it wasn't just kind of an imminent critique of generalism or kind of, as you said, sort of hoisted by their own petard uh, strategy, which is the the form that the paper takes. It also had, it had more of a disjunctive conclusion um, where it said, you know, either we do that. So either we radically revise generalism or maybe then we have reason to just get rid of the concept because once you treat dominant institutional conspiracy theories as paradigmatic, you might think, you know, there isn't much need for this concept. We already have concepts like propaganda and lies and deception and analyses of of, of power and, and influence and so on that do all the work that we would want this concept to do. So it becomes kind of a de facto argument for particularism, especially as I as I like to interpret particularism, which is as more of kind of a a critical negative reactive project that's saying, look, there is this concept that's out there both among ordinary speakers, but also, and most crucially, um, among speakers with various kinds of formal authority, um, this concept that conspiracy theories, by their very nature, by definition, are are flawed, problematic. And on the way I kind of interpret particularism is saying, well, we don't really need that concept, and that we should be really scrupulous to keep that concept out of, in particular, our sort of academic research and, and attempts to, to understand the world more broadly. Uh, instead, we just need the concepts that we have of a theory that posits a conspiracy, um, totally respectable concepts. We don't need to add this additional negatively valenced concept of conspiracy theory. So for me, the paper is very much, it's not just in spirit kind of aligned with particularism. I think it is a de facto argument for particularism. Yes, and that gets us quite nicely, I think, to your forthcoming paper in social epistemology, because as you point out, there's a kind of move that generalists make where they appeal to what is often taken to be a kind of an ordinary language conception of conspiracy theory, which is, look, the folk, and the folk are very wise, we have to always obey Mm -hmm. and respect what the folk Mm -hmm. say, the folk think conspiracy theories are mad, bad, and dangerous. And so I think it's fair to say that there's a a tension, particularly in the philosophical literature, between people who say that we should be using this ordinary language conception of what a conspiracy theory is, and then the particularists who go, well, I think we, we... for the study of conspiracy theories, to work out whether a conspiracy theory is warranted or unwarranted, we can actually just stipulate what we mean by the term, then run the analysis, and then see whether those bad consequences naturally roll out or whether they don't. 
Now, in conceptual engineering, conceptual domination, and the case of conspiracy theories, you wade into this kind of debate. But I guess for non-philosophers, and there are a few who listen to this podcast, (laughs) we should probably get clear on what conceptual engineering is. I mean, do you need a particular philosophical degree to engage in conceptual engineering? (laughs) Not, not in, not in my view. Although it would be interesting, it would be I'm interesting. Just the health and safety for conceptual engineering, because yeah, the the scaffolding on on that, that idea, very rudimentary. Bit, better wear a helmet. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, well, so it's this, it's this way of thinking about what we are doing as philosophers that's kind of exploded in, in popularity in, in recent years. And so I'll say a little bit about why I think it's, it's I'll, I'll say, of course, what it is, and then I'll say, or, or how, how philosophers think about it. And then, uh, but I, I think it's helpful to start with the question of why is it so popular? You know, so one thing you might think, and, and for anyone who's done even a little bit of philosophy, you might, you might have this this sort of nagging question in the back of your mind, which is, well, you know, what are what are really philosophers up to anyway? Um, you know, when you take supposedly um, these standard philosophical questions, what is knowledge? What is mind? What is free will? And you might you might have this worry again, either explicitly or in the in the back of your mind. And whether you're not you know, someone who's taken a great deal of philosophy or who hasn't, you might have this worry that what even are those questions after? So is what the question is after, for example, what is free will? Are we trying to represent some phenomenon in the outside world, this free will thing in the way that I say, you know, this is what a table is, or this is what a chair is. Well, then there's this free will thing. And that that seems a bit odd, right? It doesn't seem like there's this knowledge thing, um, mind thing, maybe, or free will thing that we can have those kinds of robust representations of, or just sort of armchair access to, that if I just think hard enough about it, um, I'm gonna get the phenomenon right. So you might think then, oh, well, what we're doing instead is kind of analyzing our concept of knowledge or free will or mind. But then you might think, well, what is it to analyze a concept, right? So perhaps you think it's, well, I'm trying to make sense of trying to understand how we in fact use and understand the concept of free will, knowledge, justice, etc. But then you might think, well, what's the point of that? I mean, that just tells us, if, if anything, that's like a little bit of bizarre armchair ethnography, right? It's just, this is how we happen at this particular point in time in this historical and cultural location to understand these concepts. So instead, what you might think is, in fact, what we're doing as philosophers, uh, and perhaps have always been doing without realizing it, is trying to assess and improve the concepts that we do find ourselves with, for example, free will, justice, mind, knowledge, etc., for certain purposes, for sometimes very rarefied theoretical purposes to solve a certain theoretical puzzle, um, or for certain practical purposes, right, to serve certain uh, political or social ends. And it's really the latter, actually, that was kind of the catalyst for philosophers thinking about conceptual engineering. So in particular, the work of um, the philosopher uh, Sally Haslinger and her conceptual engineering projects around the concepts of race and gender. So her position was to say, um, was to kind of run through the considerations I just ran through and say, it's kind of a a dead end to think about this as 
reporting about the facts out there about the concepts of race and gender or reporting on how we in fact understand these concepts, we should think about what work we want these concepts to do. How would they as concepts work best for certain theoretical and practical purposes that we may have? Um, and this feels like something that uh, philosophers and indeed any theorist can, can justifiably um, do. And so that's why it's and, and people started to realize, oh, beyond the concepts of race and gender, again, we can even go back to these traditional philosophical discussions and concepts to apply this methodology of conceptual engineering, kind of as I've, I've been doing in this explanation of it. And what's particularly fascinating is that you're right to say it's a relatively recent thing that philosophers have engaged in. So for a discipline which is arguably around about 3,000 years old, if we want to trace ourselves back to the ancient Greeks and just be very mm -hmm. Western-centric in our view of what counts as philosophy. The fact that it was in the late 20th century, early first, early 21st century, that we went, you know, uh, it may actually turn out that it's not just we're finding out what the term means. We actually might also be kind of engineering or even bringing assumptions or preconditions into these concepts kind of it's kind of astounding that i mean i remember when i was doing my phd we just talked about conceptual analysis you just sat down you thought about what a concept was you <laughs> unpacked the idea you wrote it down and a sensible person would agree with you but as you point out hestlinger when she starts talking about things like race and gender you start going actually it turns out people disagree when you start unpacking the term there are all mm. of these valences in the terms, which some people see and some people don't. So I think arguably there's some standpoint epistemology stuff coming in here for our kind of understanding of mm -hmm. concepts. And now, now as you say, it's become a kind of exploding growth industry. Now, <laughs> you've contributed to this exploding growth industry because you've gone beyond conceptual engineering. You're now doing domination. You're engaging in conceptual domination. Now, if we're using the analogy that conceptual engineering is like an engineering degree, now I have to ask, what's going on with the domination part of conceptual engineering? Is there a conceptual gimp mask? Is there a suit? Are there safe words? The people need to know. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, uh, I, I want to say absolutely. Um, so uh, you're right to say I, I am a fan of uh, a lot of what's being said and done in the conceptual engineering literature, but I started to develop this worry that within that literature, um, especially as philosophers were starting to see, actually, this goes back to kind of your, your question about whether or not you need a philosophy degree to do conceptual engineering. Well, philosophers were starting to know, well, wait a second, it looks like conceptual engineering is happening all over the place. So to take um, some examples from the philosopher Herman Capellan, he looks at, at legal contexts and in psychiatry, where it seems like we're often, um, even kind of from scratch sometimes, uh, articulating uh, novel concepts. Um, or we're simply building concepts that are useful for the for the purposes of those domains. But my worry became, especially as we have this more expansive view of conceptual engineering, that we think it's kind of happening in in sort of throughout our lives, that it's this too idealized picture of how conceptual disputes, that is arguments over how we ought to understand a certain concept, how those actually play out, that in fact, philosophers were falling prey to, and, and maybe you think that this is kind of a general occupational hazard that we have, which is projecting ourselves into disagreements and disputes 
um, or rather one might think kind of idealized versions of ourselves, how we would like to think we would argue and disagree in these contexts. Um, and in particular, that idealization is that it's sort of this perfect game of giving and asking for reasons, right? So I say, you know, well, we should use the concept of, say, gender or um, the concept of speech uh, in this way, given these considerations. And then the person who disagrees with me says, you know, either accepts those considerations or offers, you know, reasons of their own um, that, you know, maybe defeat uh, my view. Um, and the thing is, when you when you step outside of sort of this idealized projection of uh, how conceptual disputes play out, you realize, of course, in the real world, inflected with um, power and material interests, uh, uh, that that's that's not at all how it plays out. So I have this this paper just called conceptual domination, in which I say often what's going on in, in many real world contexts, and one might even think in some philosophical contexts, um, is that in conceptual disputes where there's an argument over how to understand a concept, is that one party, it's not that both parties are trying to arrive at the best concept so that they're both engaged in an engineering project, even if superficially on the surface, that's what they claim to be doing. Often what's going on is that um, speakers are trying to impose their view of the concept on other speakers, regardless of what the best considerations turn out to be for making sense of it. So in the paper, I give a, a couple of examples. I'll just very, very briefly mention them just to give um, people kind of an idea of, of what I'm going for. Um, so I give the example, just I guess on a Bush administration kick, um, of the infamous kind of torture memos, where a number of scholars would say, you know, the, the view of torture, of the concept of torture that was um that was being articulated within the in the memos, um, you know, was really, really shoddy scholarship that was, and I use kind of the work of of legal scholar and himself with philosopher David Lubon to make this case, but uh, really reverse engineered to arrive at a view of torture that would permit all the things that the Bush administration wanted to do to detainees and to generate the kind of information that they wanted for their foreign policy. So these were not and and people have used that example of the torture memos without quite acknowledging it in this literature to be like, oh, that's an example of conceptual engineering, right? People engineering the concept of torture. And I think that's really not what's going on. We need to be much more fine-grained here. These were not, you know, genuine inquirers who wanted to really arrive at the best concept of torture. Instead, they were trying to impose this concept of torture to pursue certain ends that they had no interest in critically reflecting on or potentially changing their minds about. And I give another example of kind of advocates in the multi-level marketing industry pushing this view of the concept of pyramid scheme, where again, their outward public-facing justification is that this is the best concept. This concept will help to avoid fraudulent practices. It'll make sure that you know the industry is on the up and up. Um, and of course, none of this turns out to be the case when you look at the actual sort of scholarship from consumer advocates on these kinds of definitions of conspiracy theories. Um, and so again, I think it's a mistake to view this as a form of conceptual engineering as doing what philosophers ideally like to think of themselves as doing. Instead, this is about trying to impose Pose a view of a concept to serve certain interests that the speakers are not in the business of critically reflecting on or evaluating. So you could think of it as kind of conceptual shouting, where you go, well, what I think the term is, no, what the term actually means, well, no, but no, what the term actually means. And the torture exactly. memos is a really great example, especially given the, the euphemistic enhanced interrogation terminology yes. that was eventually settled upon when people went... 
does look like it's torture and torture's bad. But if we just just rename the concept, it's just enhanced interrogation. And that means suddenly you get people like Chris Hitchens to come on board with it. He's against torture, but enhanced interrogation, that's not torture. It would be called torture if it was torture. It's enhanced interrogation instead. Now, what does this have to do with conspiracy theories? <laughs> well, so um some some folks in in, in the, the paper that you mentioned, I'm looking in particular at a paper by M. Julia Napolitano and, and Kevin Ruder called What is a Conspiracy Theory? Right. Is that that yeah? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Just making sure I have the yep. citation correct. There are so many different permutations of what is a conspiracy theorist, what is conspiracy theorizing anyway. Um and uh so it's looking at they 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 sort of invoke this conceptual engineering literature um, both to defend a view that they have and to set up these as as sort of the backdrop of these um, studies that they've done of uh, ordinary usage regarding the concept of conspiracy theory. But they've so to defend that kind of project and and I'll say a little bit about about that in a second. But um, also to sort of reinterpret the. Um, conspiracy theory, theory literature, so that they take views like yours and other particularists and say, uh, these are these are themselves conceptual engineering projects, and ours is a conceptual engineering project, and here's why ours, you know, works better than the one that the particularists are going for. Um, and so, right, they carry out these studies of ordinary speakers that they take to show that, well, the ordinary concept of conspiracy theory is sort of negatively evaluative. That is, it is just, is basically a pejorative concept. It's, you know, conspiracy theories are bad. That's baked into the, to the definition for ordinary usage. And then they say, what we want to do with our engineering project is we want to be in some ways, it's actually very different, interestingly, than many conceptual engineering projects. Many conceptual engineering projects say we want to leave ordinary usage behind. We don't want to be beholden to it. Their position is, no, 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 we want to engineer, you know, clean up ordinary usage a little bit, sort of around the edges, but we want to preserve this fundamental aspect of ordinary usage that conspiracy theories are bad, which again, they take their their studies to show. And we could, we could you know, talk about whether or not their studies actually show that. But for the purposes of my discussion, I take that, I just take that for granted. I I, I let them have that. Um, my concern is that is is sort of is is the following one. So my worry for their kind of project is that the concept of conspiracy theories in this negatively evaluative sense, this pejorative sense, is in my view, it's a site of and steeped in conceptual domination. That is various figures with kinds of formal authority, say political figures, certain media outlets, academic researchers are in fact imposing this concept on other speakers in a way that is not sensitive to the demands of, of inquiry. Um, and my worry is that, and in some ways this, this critique is kind of a microcosm of a worry that I have about aspects of the conceptual engineering literature in general, using conceptual engineering as an excuse not to engage with or think about the broader context in which the concept you're trying to engineer is actually being used. And we can we can see that by just thinking about, right, to take some sort of extreme examples. 
I think we can see how bankrupt it is, although it's often not at the forefront of philosophers' minds. So suppose I was going to try, and let's take your example of enhanced interrogation techniques. I was going to say, okay, I've got a new idea for a paper. I'm going to conceptually engineer enhanced interrogation techniques. And I'll have a couple sentences at the beginning that say, oh yeah, some bad stuff happened with this concept during the Bush administration, uh, but leave that to the side. Because I'm conceptual engineering, I don't need to be beholden to the relevant surrounding political historical context in which uh, that gave life to and that animates this concept. Um, I think we would say that's, a, that's, that's an egregious mistake. Um, and I think we should say the same thing about this pejorative concept of conspiracy theories. So my worry would then be that if you don't pay attention to that broader context, then inevitably your project, even if it's done with the best intentions, even if it is correctly interpreted as a form of conceptual engineering, because it doesn't reckon with this broader concept of dom uh, context of domination, ends up contributing to that form of conceptual domination, whether or not you intended to. And in fact, I think that they also do not get the particularists right. Now, you know, you tell me as our as a as the the resident uh particularist even though again of course i have a great deal of of sympathy for particularism but my view is that and and we can talk about why i think they sort of they get it wrong and and going into more of the details of their account of particularism but the short of it is that what i see particularists is doing is pointing out these concepts of conceptual domination so in particular i think you know you find this in basically any paper from a particularist, but maybe Husting and Orr's work is the best uh, representative of this, which is to show, you know, through through good kind of empirical study that these are again the kinds of figures with institutional authority weaponize this concept of conspiracy theories as kind of bad by definition, you know, bad thing um, to dismiss and marginalize. Um, sometimes genuine dissident perspectives, and just in general, anyone who doesn't subscribe to the consensus mainstream view. And what I see particularists is doing is saying then that given that kind, in particular, given that kind of history um, of, the, of the use and nature of this kind of concept, that among other reasons, but that is a reason, um, to be very skeptical that there is a useful concept here, that instead what we should do is, as you were, as you were saying before, right, opt for this neutral concept. But the opting for the neutral concept I see is a move against a kind of conceptual domination, right? So I you could call it conceptual engineering. I don't think it's particularly helpful to do it because again, I see the particularists as kind of making this defensive sort of reactive move that's saying, there is this bad concept that's doing this bad thing. Let's get rid of it or not add it to our theoretical and, and practical projects. Um, so let's work with this reduced, but in fact, better vocabulary for analyzing uh, conspiracy theories. Actually, that, that brings that's a, a nice point for me to wade in on here, because one of my reactions to the paper by M. Julian Napolitano and Kevin Ruter was that they describe my project when I talk about defining what a conspiracy theory is as an example of conceptual engineering. Now, admittedly, I will say it's a form of conceptual analysis, because I just take it, I break the terms apart, conspiracy and theory, and give a nice value-neutral, non-pejorative def definition. But I also often go, look, it doesn't really matter what the ordinary language conception of conspiracy theory is. I'm going to stipulate a meaning for debate. 
and then go through the process of if we stipulate this particular meaning, what do do we get? And then argue, well, this is probably the best meaning to take if we're interested in studying whether there's problematic belief in these things called conspiracy theory. So I'm glad to see that I'm not necessarily engaging in engineering there with my kind of stipulation, although it's quite clear they think it's a form of, of engineering that by moving away from a negatively encoded or non-pejorative definition, we are engineering the concept away from ordinary language users, which is just a, as you say, it's a, it's a weird move to make in the conceptual engineering space, because often, often we want to avoid what the folk think. And we want to go, well, actually, what is the most useful and theoretically fruitful position to take with respect to, say, free will? I mean, the example I like to use is we don't really respect the folk when it comes to physics. Because people get mass and weight wrong all the time. And it would be really weird for a philosopher of science to go, well, look, I don't care what them fancy physicists say in their ivory towers. If the folk think that weight and mass are exactly the same thing, then that's how <laughs> we should be using those terms going forward. So boffins, you need to you need to redo your equations so that I can use mass and weight interchangeably going forward because that's what the people want. You heard it. <laughs> you heard it, NASA. That's how you that's how we're gonna get to Mars. And that seems like a really weird way to go about it. And yet there seems to be people in the generous camp who go, no, no, when it comes to conspiracy theories, that's what we're meant to do. We're meant to respect the folk notion. We're meant to respect ordinary language. Diverging from it, that's just wrong. Absolutely. That's that's really nicely put. And I think in, you know, it's it's particularly surprising in these politically charged context where I think you just need very minimal assumptions to see, you know, why that why that's such a strange project when it comes to a concept like, especially the negatively encoded kind of uh, concept that they're going for of conspiracy theories or, or concepts, say, like, you know, post-truth or, or other things that are um, such a product of our political and historically specific landscape, it's not as though ordinary speakers, and I talk a bit about this in, in the paper, are sort of generating their concepts out of thin air or ex nihilo, uh, you know, as philosophers would like to say. In fact, that ordinary usage is often both for kind of more principled reasons, but then just for straightforward kind of causal reasons are the product of that larger environment, that larger political environment and the usage of figures who have more of a platform to influence uh, usage more, more generally. Um, and we might think that that broader political climate is one that you know, particularly as philosophers, we might want some critical distance from. In other words, we shouldn't assume that just because the concept is out there in our political lives, you know, that it's necessarily doing good work for us. I think we should we should have the critical distance to think uh, uh, maybe this is the kind of thing we should, at the very least, interrogate. We should wonder about, you know, its popularity, the kind of work that it's doing. We should, you know, think very seriously and again critically about that. And maybe if on reflection it turns out we still want to endorse it, then fine. But at the very least, we have to go through that process. And it turns out 
when you look at the conspiracy theory, theory literature, the people who have actually done that work, right, have concluded that, no, in fact, it's it has um, some very insidious um, effects that we should be worried about and should motivate us to change our orientation towards this, you know, quote unquote, folk concept. And in some ways, I think it's even, you know, it can be, even though this is the way they talk about it as this ordinary folk concept, it's almost misleading, right? Because if you think that, you know, non-ordinary speakers have a disproportionate influence, again, for both sort of more principled reasons we could we could talk about, but just for straightforward causal reasons, have a bigger platform, can reach more people, um, have more influence over usage. There isn't this sort of sharp cut between ordinary usage and the usage of, you know, non-ordinary speakers, whereby non-ordinary speakers, I mean, any speaker vested with some kind of institutional formal authority, whether a, a politician or um, an academic or um, a journalist at a certain kind of media institution, um, those speakers are just, their usage carries more weight. Um, so I think it's, it's very odd to think of ordinary usage as this kind of hermetic self-contained unit that's untainted by the broader historical and political context of the, of the concept. And so part of what I argue in the paper is that that sort of approach is also, uh, also a mistake. Yeah, their approach is one which ignores the role of power in society, that all <laughs> ideas come from the folk, they all emerge from the bottom up, they bubble through our politic and our society, and the people at the top are simply using the terms as the folk use at the bottom, without going, may not work that way. Now, there's the infamous CIA memo from the 1960s, where the CIA is very concerned that people are spreading what they take to be unwarranted conspiracy theories about the assassination of JFK. And there are certain conspiracy theorists out there that go, this is the origin of the term. It was invented this day by the CIA to tar and dismiss all conspiracy theories, which is Historically inaccurate, because we have references going back to conspiracy theory, at least to 1902, and that reference mm. indicates the term is being used again. We just don't know when it had been used earlier. But it is also true. The CIA were going, look, we do need a label that we can apply to these theories that will make people think less of them. And if we call them conspiracy theories, a term which already has a negative valence in our society people are less likely to listen to Bertrand Russell and the fact that he has worries about the official investigation into the death of the president. And so there is a, a top-down in position of meaning going on there. And ignoring the role of power in these stories seems like an abrogation of the kind of duty of care that philosophers should have as doing philosophy in the world to make the world a better place. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's I there's there's part of me that's kind of 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 two minds in these in these contexts, although I come out very clearly on on sort of one side. But the the thing I'm of two minds about is that on the one hand, I think it's it is a good thing that philosophers in general are trying to reach you know, a wider audience and sort of climb down from the ivory tower and demonstrate the the potential um, utility of their of their projects and and insights that they can offer that perhaps people can't get get elsewhere. I think that that's that's great. Um, but at the same time, I think a worry I have, and this goes back to kind of how we started the conversation with with a project like Kassam's, is that kind of in the almost 
stampede towards doing socially and politically relevant and engaged work, there isn't that sufficient critical distance and interrogation of that political and historical context in which these concepts that may well be of philosophical interest live, and that we do, as you as you very nicely put it there, have that kind of duty or obligation to engage in that type of criticism and at least occupy that kind of position of, of intellectual and critical distance from that, from that climate before we launch into and invoke the, the tools of philosophy, because the worry is that if we don't, um, then we just get cannibalized into all the problematic aspects of that political context. Um, and uh, certainly that's something we, we don't want to do and should be you know, scrupulous to, to avoid. Seems like you're very politely trying to say you don't think Napolitano and Rosa are conspiring to dominate <laughs> the concept there. They're simply buying into a kind of, well, conspiracy theories are a problem and we need to deal with it. And that's evident by the fact that other academics working outside of philosophy, particularly the social scientists working in social psychology, they keep pointing out it's a problem. And it's weird that philosophers aren't just buying into that program. Yes, exactly, exactly. Which is in itself a weird move that they make for the sheer fact that, yes, there's a, there's a very dedicated research program in social psychology, and you might go, it would be quite useful, philosophers could help with that project. But there are also dedicated research programs in anthropology, sociology, cultural studies, political studies, rhetoric, media studies, communication <laughs> studies, and they don't necessarily align with the work that's coming out of social psychology. So why are we serving, to use a gender term, one master over another? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, excellent question. And yeah, I mean, it's... It, at, this, at this point, we get into the folk psychology of trying to impute motives and intentions to other researchers who I think we both think have the best of intentions, even if we disagree with where their arguments go based upon those intentions. But I'm actually quite curious, is there any role for an ordinary language consideration of conspiracy theory, do you think? Or do we need to basically strip that out of our discussions and go with something which is engineered but avoids being dominated? Yeah, it's a it's a tough question. I mean, in general, I think in in these contexts, I am just sort of inclined towards a kind of skepticism and move towards, I mean, it, it it depends on the details of particular cases, but moves towards kind of abandonment, where again, not necessarily abandoning the concept of conspiracy theory full stop, but certainly abandoning um, a concept of conspiracy theory as, as by definition, something bad, something negative. So insofar as perhaps, you know, and I think the studies that Napolitano and Ruder do as a matter of kind of ethnography and, uh, you know, sort of experimental linguistics in a way, trying to track ordinary usage are, are very interesting. And, and I do want to echo your, your point, right? I don't want to get into the game of sort of like speculating about intent or motive or, or anything like that. You know, I take them very much at the word that they're doing this conceptual engineering project and, um, my worries are about kind of that methodology 
um, and how it interacts with the existing the existing literature. Um, but yeah, I think I think in general, I I want to say that ordinary language is just too inflected by and often a product of other sources and 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 forces um, that need to be analyzed and and thought about um, before we can address the question of uh, whether or not to retain this apparent ordinary usage. And in fact, so I talk a little bit about this in the paper, but there's been some discussion now, there's this tradition in philosophy of language of thinking about the way in which are not just for causal reasons, so not just because some figures have a bigger platform than other figures, but because of the very kind of structure of, of language and um, our epistemic lives as such, uh, figures with more authority have an outsized role in shaping meaning and epistemic practice more broadly. So to take some kind of famous examples, the philosophers here for folks who are interested are Saul Kripke, Hilary Putnam, Hillary Putnam Tyler Burge. They, uh, to use an example from Burge, right, if a doctor, if, if I have, you know, false beliefs about arthritis, I think I have arthritis in my, in my thigh, um, because I don't realize that it can only um, exist in my joints. I'm not using a separate concept from the doctor, right? I simply have a false belief about what's going on with my body. So we're not talking past each other. And that's because the doctor has a kind of privileged authority in the medical community, has a kind of privileged authority with respect to the term arthritis. But then once you take that kind of insight and you, uh, you have an analysis of our political lives that does want to take into account its material dimensions and the nature of power, well, then certain speakers, right, are going to be more authoritative than other speakers. Um, and, and to me, that makes a great deal of sense. Now, the authoritative speakers, uh, speaking of intentions, may not have very good intentions or may be informed by those material interests and their power in, in ways that we worry about. In which case then, if ordinary usage is downstream from that more authoritative usage, um, then we may worry about that ordinary usage as a reflection of um, those more authoritative uh, figures and that more authoritative usage. And so in general, that's where I kind of incline. I incline more towards that kind of skepticism about um, trying to preserve ordinary usage, in particular for academic context. There's a separate question of in ordinary context, should we preserve ordinary usage? And then there's the question of to what degree an academic project should we preserve ordinary usage for academic projects? And it's the latter where I'm much more on the skeptical side and my thoughts are a little more sort of undecided on, on you know, fully ordinary context. In other words, when I'm not in the seminar room, when I'm not writing a paper. And actually that brings me to my final question, which is imagine you're at a party, you meet a complete stranger. You have you've shared no details about your past, but they asked, "What do you do?" Or, "I write on conspiracy theories." Said, oh, you write on that kind of nonsense. How do you talk to the folk about the kind of work you do? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think I I wish I had something more interesting to say. I think it's sort of more it it becomes a bit ad hoc. You know, it really depends on on the situation and on the conversation. But I think I try to frame it in general in the way that kind of the way we started the the conversation, which is that I have these concerns about 
the way in which we tend to, or many people outside of especially the philosophical literature talk about conspiracy theories and theorists, I'm worried about developing this vocabulary that uniquely indicts and stigmatizes people um, who already don't have as much uh, power and influence as the people who are deploying that vocabulary. And I find that, I mean, of course, this is totally, totally anecdotal, but I, I find that actually, you know, people are, are receptive um, to, to that I, idea. I think people do have, you know, even if they themselves certainly wouldn't identify as conspiracy theorists, um, do recognize that there's a kind of worry there and a potential sort of double standard that's that's concerning. Um, so I think that's kind of how I try to frame things is to, you know, maybe abstain a bit from kind of first order stuff about, you know, this conspiracy theory or this conspiracy theorist, however that plays out in the conversation and just sort of try and take a step back and say, you know, well, I'm sort of worried about this concept in general, where it turns out that the concept that's at play is this more pejorative one. That is a great answer. I do something <laughs> similar myself, either vacillating between the trying to defang the concept in conversation or just leading with the, you do realize there's an awful lot of conspiracies out there and you probably <laughs> believe some of them and just entice them to admit that they believe at least one conspiracy theory. Then I hit them with Charles Pigton's adage about us all being conspiracy theorists and if night goes well drinking commences if night goes badly you just fake going to the bathroom and slink away <laughs> yes yes very familiar thank you matt that has been a great con conversation it's been absolute pleasure discussing conspir conspiracy theories with you in your morning and my night oh thank you so much for having me and yes uh, a pleasure over here as well absolute pleasure we will do this again great the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy stars josh addison and myself associate professor mrx dentist our show's consp sorry producers are tom and philip plus another mysterious anonymous donor you can contact josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider joining our patreon And remember, the truth is out there, but not quite where you think you left it.